next week, and then we've got two more weeks after that, and then we'll have worked our way um, all the way through. And here we are, um, as we said last week, kind of coming into the conclusions of the book. Um, we saw uh, last week, if you were with us, the preacher right, was showing us uh, this pretty bleak picture of life. Well, it was really a picture of death, that death is coming, that death is crushing, that death is uncontrollable. And then he, in this slight reversal of what we might expect, called us then to live a life of joy, making the most of what God does give us in the here and now. And in tonight's passage, well, it's not 100% clear immediately, I think that really there is one central message for us to see. And the preacher wants to show us again and again this evening a slightly different now approach to think about life in the here and now. And his call for us this evening is to see the value of wisdom against the destruction of folly. And as a result of that, he's going to call us to listen to wisdom and act in line with it in all areas of our lives. Now, we've already said this isn't a straightforward passage, so you are going to have to work with me here. Do keep the passage in front of you, uh, and we'll, we'll try, to, try to get there. But as I say, I think that main point we're going to see again and again. It is this contrast between wisdom and folly. And therefore, the call for us throughout, for us tonight, is to be thinking, as we're listening to what the preacher of this book is saying to us, we can be asking, am I living wisely or foolishly? And will I choose to live wisely or foolishly going forward? With that question ringing in our ears, let's uh, look at the first tactic that the preacher employs in pushing us to live wise lives. And that is, first of all, to show us that wisdom is valuable, and so we need to listen to it. See how he begins there in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. You couldn't get a much more positive start, could you? Great. This is wisdom. Why is wisdom great? Well, he goes on to demonstrate in this really striking little story. Read with me in verse 14. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Now as we hear this story, this is meant to inspire us. This is the classic underdog, right? The underdog story. You can imagine this being made into the the movie, right? A poor man in his little city. What chance has he got against this mighty king and army? And yet he wins. How? Verse 15, we don't know exactly how, but we're told something of it. It is that by wisdom, he comes out on top. And that's meant to uh, have us respond by saying, wow, if that is what the power of wisdom is, wow, I wish I could have that. If only you and I, right, could have wisdom to fight off any mighty army that might come our way. Well, says the preacher, if you carry on listening to me over the next little stretch of verses that we're going to look at tonight, I can begin to equip you with this kind of wisdom. 
the kind of wisdom that will be able to help you withstand and overcome unpredictabilities, frustrations of life, right? Like this army suddenly coming against this man. So that is the preacher's opening gambit here, to inspire us to seek after wisdom, because this is what it's like. It's so powerful, so valuable. But as ever in this book, the preacher is nothing but a realist. We've seen that, haven't we, time and time again. So look then how he carries on in verse 15. This poor man has saved the city, hasn't he, by his wisdom, incredibly, yet no one remembered that poor man. Not only that, but then look at the the verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. A pretty shocking a reversal, isn't it? This is pretty brutal, but it's also pretty realistic. The preacher is saying wisdom might be immensely valuable, but so often people do not listen to it. And he's saying to us, don't expect everyone to listen to it or rejoice in wisdom. It seems that despite this remarkable man's work in saving the city, he is now sidelined. Not even a statue to commemorate his mighty work in saving the people. No chat show to tune into. He's just completely forgotten. Why? Well, again, we're not told. Perhaps it might be jealousy of others who come and take his place in ruling. It might be just the busyness of life. But whatever it is, the fundamental problem that we then see here is at the end of verse 16. Do you see there? This man's words are not heard. That is the key word here, heard. And we can see that because then the preacher repeats it in verse 17. He writes, The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. See, the problem is that fools will not listen. No matter how loud you shout at them, and no matter who is shouting at them, they will not listen. So the warning here is don't be like them. But instead, hear this man's words. Hear the wise man's words in quiet. The picture there, I think, in the first half of verse 17 is of someone who seeks out and calmly sits in quietness, reflecting on wisdom the wisdom that wise people around him has told him. That is wisdom truly being heard, isn't it? Not just a passing listen as we walk by in the street, but an intentional seeking out and reflecting on wisdom. So as we hear the preacher's words here, there's an obvious challenge for us. Given wisdom's value, are we stopping to listen to it? Or are we just letting it pass us by? The preacher doesn't elaborate here on what those wise words might be that we should be listening to. But it's really fascinating because if we look back to chapter 5, verse 1, he writes something similar. If you look there, he says this. This was as he, he was talking to us about approaching the Lord. He says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice 
of fools. So for the preacher, unsurprisingly, as he has time and time again drawn us back to God in this book, wisdom must primarily be found in drawing near to God and listening to him. Just as the Israelites right, would have had God's law written down that they could return to and listen to in the preacher's day, well, today we have the immense privilege, don't we, of having the whole of Scripture before us. In a book like this, or even on this as we go through our daily lives. But the question is, are we listening to it? Are we people who genuinely come back again and again to God's wisdom as an ongoing source of encouragement, blessing, comfort, refreshment, and help in our lives? Because that's what it is. And if we're not those kind of people, we are missing out on so much, aren't we? For example, we can turn to God's word in the midst of struggles and weaknesses because it speaks challenge, comfort, and help. When temptation comes upon us, we can take up God's wise, true words and be reminded that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom we have from God. We are not our own. Or we can be reminded that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, and many people have wandered away from the faith because of it. Or when perhaps we're fear, fearful, for whatever reason that might be, we can pick up God's word. And we can be reminded that he will never leave us or forsake us. And we can be reminded that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's just two areas and a few verses that is the riches and the wisdom of God's word. Whatever may come upon us in this unpredictable world, we can be sure that God's word is a solid rock to live our lives upon and that it will speak wisdom and help to us. So the question is, again, are we listening? Are we listening to it at home with our families? Are we listening to it with our friends? Are we getting together and gathering around it and delving into the riches that are here? Maybe you're a regular here at, at Great Vic or maybe at a church elsewhere. So you do hear God's word taught and explained. But are you actually listening? Or are you like the people from this city, right? They hear wisdom. They perhaps are even thankful for it for a day. But then they just get on with their lives, completely forgetting what they've seen and heard. Wisdom is so valuable. So the preacher makes that clear to us, and he wants us tonight to make a commitment to press on in listening to it, that it will be heard. There is, however, one more dose of reality that the preacher wants to point out to us. I'm sure you noticed it there at the end of verse 18, right? Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, again, the value of wisdom, but one sinner destroys much good. And then he explains a bit of what that looks like. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
And in these verses, despite having just outlined and pressed upon us the value of wisdom, the preacher is having us know that wisdom is still vulnerable to the destruction of folly. Again, this is the reality of what the preacher witnesses in life around him. Some people may be wise, but even just one foolish person can cause so much damage. Just a few little flies of folly that sneak into that sweet-smelling perfume, or they can turn it into a stink bomb that makes everyone flee the room. Now, what's the point the preacher's making here? Well, I think, firstly, it's just a reminder that though wisdom is valuable, folly is still out there, and it is dangerous and destructive. So we should expect to see that in the world around us. But then also, secondly, I think there's a warning here for our own lives. Because it really doesn't take much folly, the preacher says, to throw our hearts way off track. Just a drop here or there can completely change a sweet-smelling odor of wisdom in our lives to becoming a stench of folly. So we need to be warned, folly is not to be something to be messed around with. It's not to be played around with as if it's harmless. No, it can have deep, long-lasting impacts, even more than we'd ever think. I mean, what harm can just one critical comment to that person disguised as a joke really do? Or what harm can that one tweet to that person who just keeps bugging me? What harm can that really do? Or, Or what harm can just one more look at that thing do? or just one more drink, or just whatever it might be. Folly is not to be messed around with. Because actually, it is as destructive as it comes. We can only just begin to imagine the end that comes with those kind of starting questions. And so I think that brings us right to then what is at the heart of this passage, And there's this contrast that we see there in verse 2. Here's the heart of the matter for the preacher. Will we live wisely or foolishly? Look at verse 2 there. It says this, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, in speaking of the right and the left, it might well be that the preacher is using the right to talk, to talk about strength and blessing. That's often what it does refer to in the Bible. But whether that's immediately in view here or not, the picture is clear, isn't it? A wise man's heart, well, it leads him this way, and a foolish man's heart, well, it leads him in completely the other way. See, for the preacher here, he's recognizing a fundamental truth that we see throughout the Bible. There is no middle ground in living our lives. There's no middle path. And depending on the path we take, well, that's going to have far-reaching consequences. Proverbs, in particular, picks up on this. And Proverbs 9 It picks up on these completely opposing paths that we can choose to take, either going to the house of wisdom or to the house of Lady Folly, where those entering the house of wisdom, well, they will live and walk in the way of insight. But those entering Lady Folly's house, they do not know that the dead are there. 
that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The path of life or of death. The stakes are high, so we need to think this through carefully. We need to listen to the preacher's words here. Will we live wisely or foolishly? But notice with me the central part of this question, the heart of this question of living wisely and foolishly, because it is exactly that. It is the heart. See, the heart refers to the core of who we are as people. It refers to the seat of our affections, where we love. So given this and what the preacher has been showing us throughout this book, we have to stop and take a long, hard stare at what or who we truly love. Because if, above all, we actually do love money, fame, pleasure, our reputation, comfort, power, anything like that, well, the preacher has made it really clear throughout this book that time and time again, those things will come up short and they will leave you completely empty on this path of folly. They're going to lead you in the wrong direction, away from the path of life. But if, instead of living, loving those things, those worldly things, and pursuing them, we instead are drawn back to a love of God, a God who last week we saw is, is fundamentally good and gracious to us, well, that will incline us to the right path, to the path that leads to life. It's no surprise that the Bible repeatedly declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 9, it talks about that too. And that's because the, the Lord, our God, is at the heart of all of wisdom. And while love and fear might sound like different things, in the Bible, they both stem from the same thing. And that is rightly recognizing who God is, a good God who we can run to, even as we also approach him in reverence and awe because of his majesty and glory and power. The message of the preacher here is that we should live wisely. But fundamentally, we can't go about doing that this week by running with a load of checklists, do's and don'ts. It's actually about something much deeper than that. It's about pursuing God first and foremost in our lives, dwelling in our minds on him. A bit like what we're trying to do in the mornings as Steve has been preaching to us about the nature of God and as we delight in that nature together. Then, and only then, as we love and delight in God, will we truly begin to see wisdom appearing in our lives. We can live according to God's wisdom. So this evening, as we hear the preacher's words, don't just settle this week for making wiser choices, but instead ask for God's help to first of all as we sang this morning in that song, Be Thou My Vision, make him and him only first in my heart. Make him the treasure that we chase after. Verse 3, if you look with me, is a picture of the opposite of this, of what a foolish person looks like, lacking any sense. And even despite all of that, they go around telling everyone else that they're the fools. Well, the preacher doesn't want us to be like that. 
And so in the next verses ahead, he now turns to some of that practical wisdom that we said we often see in the Bible too. Practical wisdom for our daily lives. And here, from verses 4 to 15, he's going to give us three specific areas of life to be wise in. Starting, first of all, with the preacher calling us to listen and be wise by responding calmly to the folly of anger. See what the preacher says there in verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Here, the foolish person in view is a ruler, as often is the case in Ecclesiastes, but the general principle stands right across life. If someone foolishly comes against you in anger, do not respond in kind. In the world around us, anger so often leads to anger, doesn't it? It's a spiral. And this is what I think the preacher is referring to in leaving your place there in verse 4. As you either leave your place uh, to storm out or you leave your place to answer that anger with anger yourself. But that is not the wise response. Instead, we should respond calmly, realizing that fighting folly with folly, anger with anger, well, as we've already said, will only lead to more and more destruction. See, a calm response a patient response, soft words. They can completely transform a situation like this, a narrative. Now, it isn't saying that we become walkovers. The Bible never speaks about that. That if we have truly been wronged, we don't speak up. But it is saying that we need to be wise in how we do that. And it's almost never going to be best for us to respond in anger to this kind of situation. In any kind of situation like this, it is always just better to have one angry person than two, isn't it? That's just common sense. And the thing here is that that can lead to grace and favor winning out instead of just a spiraling descent into more and more anger. Now, for many of us, we're unlikely, I think, to be called in to see a ruler potentially like this. But we can see it, can't we, in other areas of our life. A boss. Even with people in our house. Do we descend into this kind of spiral as someone comes against us, flies off their handle at us, whether it's right or wrong? Well, the preacher says, be wise. Don't respond to anger with anger, but instead be calm, patient, and gracious. Because not only are we ultimately going to then point them to Christ as others see his character in us, but often, as the preacher says, it will lay great offenses to rest. Forgiveness and peace can be restored. And to once again make the point of why we should choose this kind of living, wisdom instead of folly, in the next few verses, the preacher once again clearly demonstrates for us the destruction of folly. Look there in verses 5 to 7 at the evil and destruction that just one foolish leader can cause. Verse 6 says this, Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. 
The point here is that this foolishness of this one ruler has completely and utterly destroyed society. Foolishness now completely reigns instead of wisdom. And those who are trained and able to help society the most, those who are rich, those who are princes, well, they've been sidelined and made nothing. And the point again here is this. This is the kind of destruction and that foolishness brings about. So don't even go there. Be wise in how you respond to something like the folly of anger or whatever other foolish thing you come across. Because if you do respond in kind, just look at the topsy-turvy world that it causes, the destruction that it causes. It'll cause that in your life and also in the lives of others too. And then in verses 8 to 11, the preacher now turns his attention to a different call to being wise. And this, I think, is a call to be wise by being well prepared and ready to act in good time in your everyday life and dealings. These are fascinating little proverbs, aren't they? If you look with me, verses 8 to 11. See there, in verses 8 to 9 particularly, the preacher lists what just seems to be... a list of unfortunate accidents that can happen to any of us. A bit like we were thinking about last week in chapter 9 as well. Time and chance, right? It happens to us all. This is a pit that's meant to trap an animal that ends up trapping you. An axe that you're using to do your job of splitting a log, well, actually, it endangers you. Perhaps as it glances off the log and strikes you in the leg, So what should we do in light of these seeming misfortunes? Well, says the preacher in verse 10, first of all, be wise by being as well prepared and thought through as you can be. If your axe is blunt, not only will it not do the job, but also a blunt axe can in fact often be more dangerous than a sharp one as it glances off the log and strikes you instead of sticking into the log. And the other point that the preacher makes here is that you're going to end up taking more and more, I think, wild swings at the log to try to get through it. So think ahead about what your job will need. Be prepared and be careful. And also, as he points to in verse 11, act in good time using your wisdom. There's no point in being wise but not acting upon it. See there in verse 11, the charmer, well, they have the wisdom, don't they? They've needed to charm the serpent. But it ends up being completely useless because the serpent has struck before the charmer arrives to do anything about it. From these two examples, the questions for us to ask are for ourselves as we look at our own lives is are we going through life aware that there are dangers and pitfalls around us? And are we then acting wisely in light of them? Even our smallest, most inconsequential actions can actually have long-lasting impact and cause long-lasting harm, particularly if we do them foolishly. So we need to be careful and thought through, prepared for whatever comes our way but also not so well thought through, right, that we never act, because that's foolishness too. Now, as we 
stop and think about this for us today, one thing I think that we can be doing and we should be doing regularly is praying. Praying and asking God for his guidance and wisdom in our everyday lives. Even perhaps in some of the smaller decisions we make. It would be foolish, wouldn't it, to just rush through life like so many people do, making one split decision after another, after another, after another. That's foolishness. That is not being thought through. That is not recognizing the realities of life. Instead, we should seek God and ask him to help Ask him to help us to see where there are dangers or pitfalls around us and to guide us away from them. Questions like which house or apartment should I buy? Should I take that job? Do I approach that colleague that's about working with them? Should I ask that person out? Is it good for me to be spending money on this? All of these kind of questions are wise questions to be asking in our everyday life. And we should be asking them and carefully asking God to guide us and help us in thinking them through so that we are well prepared. But don't also take that as a, as a means to never act. Because having thought things through, we are then sought to go and to live out wisdom. Don't wait until it's too late, like the preacher uh, shows us in verse 11 there. Right, so the preacher has uh, one final practical bit of wisdom to offer us in these verses. And that is that we should listen and be wise by speaking wisely and graciously. Sooner or later, wisdom and folly always ends up coming back to how we speak. That's what we see here in verses 12 to 15 and what we see throughout the Bible. And again, we see here a picture of the value of wisdom in our speech, but the destruction of folly. See, first of all, the value of wisdom, of speaking wisely and graciously. The first half of verse 12. The words of a wise man's and woman's mouth, will they win him and her favor? Literally, in the original, this verse actually reads like this. The words of a wise man's mouth, grace. So the question is, is it that the wise man's mouth gives out grace and favor, or is it that the wise man's mouth wins favor and grace? And I think the ambiguity here could possibly imply that it's both, right? Where before we saw an angry, foolish ruler, here we see a wise, gracious, kind man or woman who speaks words of grace and kindness to others and often sees that rebound back to themselves as well as people respond in kind. Of course, it's never quite as certain as that, but it's a great general principle, isn't it? Is that what you're like with your words? Do you speak grace and favor? Or are you actually someone who is quick to criticize, to put other people down, to question them, to condemn them, even if it's just behind their backs? Because each of those things are the talk of fools. 
And just look what happens to them. See there the second half of verse 12? The lips of a fool consume him. Destruction again. And this kind of negative talk, can't it, can often come back to bite us, destroy us. See that in what the preacher says, if you jump with me to the end here in verse 20. He says, don't even entertain cursing the king or the rich. Why? Because even when you you think you're speaking in private, often that can come to light and it can end up landing you in pretty hot water. As the preacher alludes to there in verse 20, the walls have ears. And don't we still say today, well, a little birdie told me that you said. Look at the destruction of a foolish talker here, verses 13 to 15. They enter this vicious cycle, don't they? Beginning just in foolishness, but ending in evil madness. They just keep on talking and talking and talking and talking, not graciously, but foolishly. And they go on and on about things that they have no right to talk about. Like there, if you look with me in verse 14, about the future. Who knows what's coming? Well, this fool claims to. But do you see there in verse 15, all of that talk amounts to nothing. The toil of a fool, which is pretty much only his speech, right? A fool very rarely actually does any work. Well, when all's said and done, it wearies them, and they don't even know the way to the city. Something as obvious as the large place that you would have to go pretty much every single week, perhaps, to go and get your bread and water or whatever you need from town. This fool knows nothing. Our mouths can so quickly lead us astray, can't they? And here, the preacher has vividly reminded us of that again. And books like James in the New Testament make that clear to us as well, calling the tongue a world of unrighteousness and speaking of the folly of speaking about the future as if we have it under our control. When time and time again in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere in the Bible, we are reminded that we totally do not have it under control. So given these warnings, will we once again stop this evening and think about the power of our words and think about which direction they're leading us in, to the right or to the left? Will we choose to purposefully and regularly speak grace and favor and wisdom towards others? I mean, just stop and think about that. Imagine if every one of us here this evening, well, there's maybe 70 people here this evening. Imagine if every single one of us this evening set about doing that, speaking grace and favor. Imagine the impact just on the church here, right? But then wider than that too, as we all go out to our work, to our homes, to, see, to be surrounded by our neighbors, wherever it might be, it'll be pretty awesome to see what that brings about, isn't it? As we also would see some of that rebound to us, the blessing and encouragement of that. Well, as we come to a close now, the preacher wants to give us one more image One more comparison, just in case we need it, to help push us towards heeding his words, to pursuing wisdom in our lives rather than folly. 
It's like he's saying here in these final uh, four verses or so, you're still unconvinced? Well, just look again. Look one more time at the value of wisdom versus the destruction of folly. Look with me at the contrast between verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 pronounces the complete and utter woe, the devastation that comes upon a land when someone who is immature, someone who's foolish like a child, is put on the throne. The princes, do you see that? They should be the ones getting up each morning and running the country. But they're actually getting up each morning and feasting, wasting the day away in drunkenness. Verses 18 to 19 pick up on this, I think. He comes back to this image from 16, then in 18 and 19. And we see the devastation of this kind of slothfulness, this kind of laziness, this selfishness. As the preacher writes, the roof sinks in. The house leaks. These people have done nothing needed to patch up the cracks in the society around them. But instead, they have left them to get wider and wider until the whole thing has collapsed. And that's all happened as they've sung what seems to be this merry drinking song, maybe, in verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, money answers everything. This is the ultimate end of foolishness. Complete and utter devastation and destruction even as the fool continues on their merry way, often pretty much blind to the catastrophic, devastating consequences of what they're doing and saying. But that doesn't have to be the way it is. Look at verse 17 there. It stands out gloriously. The contrast there. The preacher writes, happy. That is literally blessed. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Here's the opposite picture, right? A king properly counseled, properly taught, like a son of nobility most often would have been. They rule wisely. They still allow princes, the princes, those who rule, to feast and enjoy life, but at the proper time. And for the proper purposes of refreshment and strength. And just look at the value of that kind of wise rule. The land is blessed. As we come to the end of this section of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is setting before us one final powerful contrast of blessing and value that wisdom can bring, not only to ourselves, but also to others around us. And he's comparing that with the destruction that folly inevitably brings. And in light of that, he's saying to us once again, which way will you choose? Will you be wise or will you be foolish in your life? The choice is well and truly yours, but the preacher and I tonight want to say to you, don't say you haven't been warned. Because if you choose folly, it's going to come back to bite you. Destruction is sure to follow. Instead, let me call each and every one of us here this evening to respond by pursuing wisdom. Pursue wisdom in your life. It is so valuable. 
Ultimately, we want to be those who live wisely under the sovereign and gracious rule of the one true king, don't we? The one who, if we pick up the language there of verse 17, is actually the son of nobility in two ways. The son of David and the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to follow his rule and his wisdom and the grace that flows from that, the blessing, the value of that. Well, it can't even be counted. We want to live according to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's wise and gracious and good ways because ultimately that leads to life. Life to the full now and eternal life to come. Here's what Jesus himself says. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's live wisely under his sovereign rule in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, as we said, this passage, not immediately straightforward, and yet there is so much here for us to take away and think through in our lives. In particular, that central call. Will we live wisely or foolishly. And Lord, please would you be at work in our hearts. As we were thinking about there, Lord, please would you shape our hearts to first and foremost love you. Lord, please would you set a deeper love for you in our hearts. And Lord, would that make us seek after you more? And Lord, would that by your spirit change our lives as we regularly and repeatedly come back to your wisdom? often in your word. And please, Lord, would you speak help and comfort and protection to us. Lord, thank you for the wise words here of the preacher that warns us of the follies that we could go after, but the destruction that those things lead to. Lord, please hold us fast to Christ this evening. And Lord, please, would we be those who speak grace and favor, just like the Lord Jesus Christ spoke Lord, would we be those who are wise and prepared and act in good time? And Lord, please, would you just be with us this week and guide us and help us in all that we do. Help us to live wisely and help us to put the Lord Jesus Christ as the one on, our, on the throne in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, by singing this song, May the Mind of Christ My Saviour Live in Me from Day to Day. It's a great picture, isn't it? A bit of what we were just thinking about as we ask that the Lord would guide us and help us every single day to be wise and live for him. So let's stand uh, as we finish and sing this together.
as we run that race, let's hear these words from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.